Welcome to the Plexus Podcast. Today, Brad Johnson and J.P. Novin are joined by our very special guest, Dr. Beth Strobel. Okay, welcome to the Plexus Podcast. Today, we're here with Dr. Beth Strobel, the Chancellor of Webster University. Beth, how are you today? Doing great, thank you. We're on a thunderstorm, so uh, a little darker in here than usual, but a cheerful day nonetheless. That's okay. Hey, we're looking forward to hearing a little lightning and thunder in the background in between answers. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, let's, let's go ahead and start. Let's go back, rewind a little bit and talk a little bit about your background. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a simple question for me, although I'm sure there's a, a lot of content to it, but why education? What led you to the position that you're in now? I thought about this in a new way because of uh, the context that we're talking today. And I started school as a first grader. I don't think kindergarten was available in our district. So I started school as a first grader and I basically never left. <laughs> so not only did I love school, I most importantly loved learning. Um, and that's at the heart of why I'm an educator. I love to learn myself. I love to learn with others. And I like to help others gain that love of learning um, that, that I've enjoyed lifelong. Well, that's great. Let's talk a little bit about, about Webster University. Um, you obviously have a global presence, strong military support. Um, but talk to me a little bit about um, just overall how you're able to compete globally and maybe just share, you know, who is Webster University? I think there's a lot of universities that have their place in higher education, whether it be HBCUs, whether it be liberal mm -hmm. arts, faith-based institutions. Who is Webster University? Almost every university, and I've been at several. Um, my career has taken me from high school teaching, actually, um, to university teaching uh, and now university administration. And almost every school district and almost every university thinks they are one of a kind, of course. Uh, and they probably truly are. Uh, what made me love Webster and want to come to Webster, uh, first as president and now chancellor, uh, was the fact that it was founded by women. Uh, and it was founded by women in 1915 before women could vote. So women founded a university to educate women, to give them opportunities for degrees and lives of service um, well before that was the norm. Uh, and in 1915, it wasn't even considered the thing that women should go beyond high school. And if they did, it was more a preparatory kind of school to prepare you to be a good wife. So women's leadership has always been valued um, at Webster University, but the other value at Webster University was meet a need and change in the ways that you need to change to meet because the needs change. So about 50 years into Webster's history, the Sisters of Loretto, who were the founding order, really decided that Webster could only educationally thrive if it stopped being Catholic, stopped being religious, stopped being only for women, 
and they transferred the ownership of the university to a lay governing board. And that's when some major decisions were made by the new governing board that define us to this day. So in the 1970s, we began to serve military um, service members on the base. And we were the first university in the country to do that. In 1978, we founded our first international campus in Geneva, Switzerland, the oldest of our international campuses. So this idea of you take education to where a student is, you modify how you do education and where you do education so that you actually meet the needs of a student as opposed to expecting a student to come to you. Um, and we keep doing that because that motive and that idea of do what you need to do to give students the opportunity and open doors for them is so fundamental to who we are. I'll tell you, I love hearing that meet, meet the students where they are. Um, a good friend of ours, Dr. Gregory Fowler from University of Maryland Global Campus, believes in you know meeting the students where they are. And oftentimes um, that's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. Um, so let me ask you a question. What are the differences between being a chancellor and being a president? Mm -hmm. um, because Webster is really a global university system, um, we function much more like public university systems do where there's a system head and then a campus head. Uh, but the way we have defined the two top leadership roles um, used to be president and provost, and now it's chancellor and president. Um, and my role tends to be more external, uh, fundraising, communicating, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is in my portfolio, um, as well as events. Um, so the president tends to function much more as the chief academic officer and the chief operating officer. Um, and I am much more of the externally facing executive. Um, so I'm still the CEO, just as I was with the title of president, but with a slightly more focused portfolio. So talk to us, you, you mentioned diversity, inclusion. Can you talk to us a little bit uh, about that? And what does that mean for Webster? Yeah, so because we often thought um, that women were the diverse population that needed to be included, and it's about inclusion now more than it is diversity. So it's not only representation, it is how, how do you build opportunities so that there's equity um, in the um, diversity um, and that success um, comes to everyone? Uh, that's really what it means. And we believe that success comes to us more fully if we are members of a diverse population, um, that success absent diversity um, is fairly hollow um, and maybe not truly achieved. Uh, so that that does mean that diversity is a strength for us. So it gets expressed in many ways. It gets expressed in the curriculum. It gets expressed in the ways we organize ourselves, um, having a chief diversity officer that we first appointed in 2013. Um, and now we have the second individual in that role. He's greatly expanded what we do. 
even globally, um, the diversity part of Webster is quite important. It's why it was important to us to have a campus in Africa. We had been largely European-based and Asian-based for many, many decades. Um, in Asia, at that point, we were in Thailand and China, um, and we had partners in Japan, but we really had no presence in Africa. And it's hard to say that you're a global institution without that. Uh, so we have a campus in Ghana, uh, and we have now expanded to Central Asia in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. And our newest campus, which will open in October, will be in Singapore. Um, and the areas clearly that we still need to explore and build are um, Central and South America. Uh, so we're trying to be a reflection of the reality of the world. Um, global citizenship is at the heart of our mission. We think that our mission is to use education to transform students to be individually excellent and to be global citizens. Um, it's hard to develop global citizenship without being interactive with the thoughts and expressions and ideas and the people um, around the globe. Um, but here in St. Louis, of course, the main focus on diversity uh, because of St. Louis and its history and its nature now um, is race. Uh, and everyone who knows the issues around Ferguson uh, after Michael Brown's death knows that there was a flurry um, and a, a, and a reawakening um, of the need for racial reckoning and, and justice movement. Many universities, particularly in St. Louis, held a conference that year and raised the issues of, of race and equity. Webster, true to its who it is and, and to our credit, uh, is in our seventh year of holding an annual conference. And last year we held it virtually and we gained over 2000 registrants as a result. Um, we've added to that now. We have a program that we call Webster Speaks that is a monthly webinar hosted by the DEI officer uh, that treats issues of race and equity and justice with local speakers and international speakers alike. Uh, so our thought leadership um, around DEI work just continues. Um, our representation in our undergrad student body is 14% Black. Um, and our grad programs have always attracted um, a very diverse population because when we started doing part-time master's degrees in metro locations for working adults, in many locations where we were, we were the only option for a black to get a master's degree. They were prohibited from entering the state university. So we were naturally opening a door and meeting a need that no other institution was. So for 26 years running in this country, we were the leading private or um, public university for graduating blacks with master's degrees. Uh, so the DEI work isn't something that we've embraced because of the current focus. It's something that just grows in its depth um, and commitment for us um, and the ways that we take on the work to truly try to make a difference. 
Yeah, that is, that's amazing. And that ability to, to work locally with other institutions, with other businesses and the community in general um, is great. So when you look at the job market today, and when you look at the, the market in 10 years, there's a lot of jobs and, and there's a lot of job titles that don't exist today that will in 10 years. How do you prepare a student um, for the future? I think the way that any of us prepares for a job, even if it's a job that already exists, but we don't know that we're going to want it, <laughs> is to prepare as, as well as you can to have options open to you. <laughs> uh, and so I think that narrow, short-term kinds of programs, um, you know, do this in six months and, and it gets you a job. Um, that is inevitable that you will continue to have to do more of that because you've only prepared for one scenario. Uh, so the right kinds of education um, gives you the base for multiple future scenarios, ones that currently exist and ones that, that we don't even know about now. Um, we know what employers say now is the right foundation for employment. We know that they say communication ability computational skills, ability to work with others in, in diverse teams, problem-solving um, orientation. Uh, so you cannot go wrong with those as your base. Um, and what Webster also does to try to make students more career-ready um, is some practical things. We've limited the number of credits for a degree, um, but within that, We've allowed students to very openly double major so that you kind of create yourself ready for two pathways. And we have all these add-on certificates and, and pieces uh, that just even in an undergrad degree give you a pretty strong base of saying, all right, I've got an entrepreneurship certificate um, and I've got a degree in animation or a degree in cybersecurity or, you know, nurse and health management. So we like to package things in ways that give versatility. Um, I would also say that the kinds of grants that we're being funded for now with the federal government, one that I think is particularly timely to today's discussion, um, we have a professional counseling program. Hmm. Students in counseling programs are required to do internships. Typically, those internships would be in um, a professional counseling setting. But we've been funded now to place those interns in local healthcare agencies. Because what we've learned is the people who need counseling often don't know how to get to a counselor. They don't know how to find counseling. They don't really need, know that, that this would be a help to them. And the way they're manifesting their need is going to a doctor or a nurse or a healthcare agency. So by placing our internship interns in those agencies, not only are they getting what they need for career preparation and giving back to the community, but they're expanding their career options in the future to understand that counselors work in lots of settings. So it is this industry and university partnership that feels to me like the ripest way to stay in tune with what employers are going to want 
um, and how the market is changing, as opposed to just doing our own thing and hoping it works. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So what are what are some of the things that you think higher ed can do uh, to be more innovative? And how is it supports the needs of labor markets and industry? Mm -hmm. Well, I do think that doing programs on site, you know, just as we talked before about offering international programs actually in international locations or, you know, working adults actually taking the master's degree programs, certainly online, and we've not talked very much yet about online, but we should. Um, but for healthcare administrators in the St. Louis area, we actually offer their entire program on site at the hospital. So mm -hmm. they don't leave and they help identify who the employees are that they wish to invest in to take this master's degree or advanced certificate or whatever it is. Um, and as a result, they've identified the talent. We provide the skills and the content and the credentials. And what they have discovered is that their retention of those employees is significantly improved. So it's that kind of innovation, I think, um, with military population, uh, one of the innovations for their market um, is to build in the programs that the service already provides those service members into a degree program so that they get to the finish line faster. Hmm. Um, take, use credit for experiences, use credit for captain's courses, um, try to package things in a way that you build on the building blocks um, rather than making people repeat things just because it comes with your label on it. Right. Um, same would be true for transfer students and undergrads. Um, we have a lot of grant funded activity that enables a student in a local community college to come to us um, with their, maybe their associate degree or at least two years worth of coursework. Um, and the grant pays for them to finish their biology degree with us um, free. Um, so finding federal funding sources that make these partnerships uh, work between institutions, whether it's military or, or corporate partners, um, or whether it's community colleges, uh, I think that affordability and convenience um, and putting it together in ways that work with people's lives um, is what it will all be about. Well, and I think that's something that uh, one of the many things that Webster really distinguishes itself by is that flexibility mm. and that convenience. So when you talk about a non-traditional learner in comparison to traditional learner and the, the, the ways of marketing and recruiting and student success for a traditional age learner, a student right out of high school versus an adult learner who now is online is far different. And that's something that Webster does incredibly well. Can you talk a little bit about, about well, online? Well, sure. I mean, we started the online programs in 1999. Uh, and the first population we were trying to help were military. Uh, because after all, just because you start your assignment at a base where we offered courses, didn't mean that you weren't going to be transferred out to another base or overseas in the next six months. 
Uh, and these folks were highly motivated to finish a degree program. So the degree program needed to go with them. <laughs> and, and from that beginning, it became very clear that, that this is something that um, is, can be done at a high level of quality and convenience at the same time. And it's important to us that we not trade off quality for convenience and flexibility. And, and we don't think we do. Um, even among undergraduates, and most of our undergraduates are commuters. They're not living in the dormitories. We Even here at the home campus, we have a very small percentage of students that live in dormitories. So non-traditional would be more our tradition. Uh, but among our undergraduates, half of them take at least one online course. Because after all, it works in your schedule. Why not? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, well, well I, I think I have a few questions. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So certainly Webster University has been trailblazer throughout history. I mean, not just because being one of the oldest international, establishing the oldest international campus, but in 1944, you know, St. Louis University started admitting African-American students. That's, that's long before, I mean, talk about going against, there must have been a political backlash at that time, and it must have been a difficult move by Webster to do that. Uh, so it's, it's an incredible rich history. Um, do you find that history carrying through generations? I mean, do, do people appreciate that history now all these years have passed by? Yeah, I think so. And and actually, you're right. Our first two African-American students graduated in 1950, well before Brown versus Ford. And that's when the Sisters of Loretto were still operating the institution. And of course, there was backlash. Um, but, you know, I, I am a student of history. My, my undergrad degree is in history. So I, I love the history of a place. Uh, and I've learned that in the 1930s, we had a student from China here. Oh, and wow. in the 1940s, this institution provided scholarships to Japanese students who were in internment camps in California to bring them here for an education. So, you know, I love to tell the stories of that history because it sort of fuels our commitment to keep doing that. Uh, but our chief diversity officer has really made a lot out of this, you know, 1950 graduating the first two. Um, and what he's proud of, and I'll give you the number, um, is that since those first two, as of last year, we had graduated 41,000 African-Americans with wow. 47,500 degrees. So that's that's work that has been ongoing, uh, but you're right, it is partly uh, the role of chancellor um, is to highlight that history and, and it's a good job for me. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was blown away. I was also surprised how good you guys are in chess. I mean, <laughs> amazing, amazing well, history of chess. 
you know, and, and chess is a global game. So it's a good fit for us. Um, it transcends language, it transcends boundaries. Um, so you're absolutely right. And, and we have a, a brand new chess coach this year, uh, Lim Lee, who was a champion from Vietnam, a graduate of the program. Uh, and we're eager to see how he does because Susan Polgar, our founding um, of the chess team and, and head of Spice um, has now retired. So uh, Susan is still associated with us, but Lim Lee uh, is our new coach and we think we'll do quite well. Well, you guys are definitely a juggernaut when it comes to chess. And I think you have full international respect as a university and, and that whole culture. So one of I don't often get a chance to talk to a university that has so many international branches. It is, mm -hmm. so I'm going to use this opportunity. And also on Plexus, we have over 6 million international students that use our platform. So this is a great venue. And so when, when we look at the global trends towards knowledge economy, so a lot of these countries are going transforming from carbon economy to knowledge economy. All of those countries you mentioned, Ghana, where your students are going there to study, you know, for nine semester or so, and Uzbekistan, these are all developing countries. So I'm curious, given the fact that all of those countries have experimented with different forms of funding, they've gone from full public funding, they've gone from, from full taxation funding, and now I think they're reaching into this phase of tuition sharing and privatization, right? Yes. Yes. And, and, and so Uzbekistan is a good example. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, clearly those campuses abroad function as study abroad sites for students here, but their campus is in their own right. So mm -hmm. they have residence halls, they have resident faculty, they have students who study at those campuses and get a Webster degree from here, but never come here. Hmm. So they are they are fully accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. And in almost every case, they're fully accredited in country as well. So Uzbekistan, because the country, the Republic itself um, has gone through this transformation that is still ongoing to build strong partnerships with the United States and, and US employers who have set up um, factories and, and shops and, and all kinds of enterprises in Tashkent and everywhere. Um, the Republic of Uzbekistan actually invited us to be present there. Oh. And they provide um, building and we do a tuition share with them. And it's a unique model that we have built in Uzbekistan uh, because our partnership is with the government uh, because they believe that the quality of the education that we provide taught in English, um, American accredited will give their young people a great competitive advantage by staying in the country. But of course, a certain number of Uzbek students would love to have a study abroad experience in St. Louis. Um, and I'm all about raising the funds to make that possible. And, that's, that's, and how do the students and the 
what is the perception of Webster University? I mean, because typically in those countries, the public universities are much more elite. They don't have much of a private institution like we do. But is, is, is are you considered a prestigious university? Is, is that a school they all want to come to now? Well, you know, that's in the eye of the beholder. So I'm not sure I can answer that question. But what I can tell you is we've really been open only in Tashkent for two years. Okay. And we believe that by end of the year, we will have 2000 students. Wow. So, wow. you know, I, I, I think that we've hit a market there that clearly thinks that we have something of value. And if that's what we do, if we add value to our students, that's what we care about. What does it take operationally? I mean, just at, at the macro <laughs> level to do all of this, to have this, all of these campuses this, and manage them. This takes a team and this is why you have a chancellor and a president <laughs> yeah. and, and, and a great number of people that are housed at our various locations um, that are globally focused and, and know how to do this work. Um, it is an amazing operation and I love being part of it. it it's indeed unique and, and I can't imagine how busy you are. So even more thank you for taking the time uh, and, and spending time with us. I, I do have an, a, a question because you talked about, you know, the, the funding that you're getting from the government, right? As far as especially in, in doing, you know, education, cooperative education programs and, and the kind of impact it has. And I go back to this because for so long we've looked at the student performance outcome in terms of no, number of credits accumulated by students, number of graduates, research publication, number of doctorate thesis. Are you are you saying that? there are other performance measures now that we should really take into account. And I'll, I'll be very interested into hearing a little bit about that. Well, I do think that the standard measures are always going to be the standard measures and our creditors are really moving more towards outcomes rather than inputs. Mm -hmm. You know, at one time, accreditors maybe cared more about how many books did you have in your library as opposed to what people did with those books? Um, and now graduation rates and retention rates and um, and peer rankings and, and all of that certainly are still measures of quality. How authentic are they? Everybody could debate. But for an individual student, those dreams and those aspirations, what they wish to do next in their life is as individual as that student. Yeah. And so as a teacher myself, mm -hmm. I've always thought that taking a student from where they are and helping them achieve that goal <laughs> is the ultimate measure of student success. And for some students, it'll be to be competitive on a world stage and, and certainly I can point to any number of examples of Webster graduates that, you know, are, for example, the current U.S. Secretary of Defense is a Webster alum. Mm. Or I can point to people that are animators with Walt Disney Studios or Jennifer Lewis, who's star of Blackish, a very popular U.S. TV series. So, you know, th there are Webster graduates in these prominent roles everywhere and internationally for many students being first in their families graduating college 
which is a traditional measure, is there is their metric of success because they're the first in their families to ever do that. Uh, and that that is as individual as it is. I'm so glad you talked about this because every time we talk, we're in, based in Silicon Valley. And one of the things we say is that education is not linear. It is so multifaceted. It's not a product. You're dealing with, with so many people at different levels. And by the way, I didn't notice Jack Dorsey did speak at your school. That, yes, that was- that's when I first got on Twitter, and uh, and and I love Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that was really interesting. So here's a challenge question that we ask, you know, university leaders all the time, which is just changing the paradigm, right? So I, I saw a great picture today of what a change in paradigm is. There was an egg. And there was a chick that was out of the egg and the chick says, oh, a new paradigm. We just saw a whole new paradigm. I thought that was a great example. That is very funny. Yeah. So um, could a new paradigm potentially be that every student, just like healthcare has done, as soon as they enter college, they actually do a simultaneous apprenticeship or internship, kind of Germany plays around with that idea. So like I was a philosophy major and, and to my immigrant parents, I was a complete failure. It's like, why did you, why, why would you go and study philosophy? We came 10,000 miles across the sea, not for you to study philosophy, but you know, uh, and it took some courage and, 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 and being young and, and experimented. But it would have been nice if I could have written philosophy papers and, and experimented more with that at a young, do you see it? education going towards more and scholarship of practice, perhaps? Well, I I think some fields are ahead of others in this regard. Um, And, you know, some philosophy departments are ahead of others in this regard, even to use your major uh, (laughs) as an example. Uh, So I think so. Um, But that takes um, sort of a, a reorientation of all of us who are the educators. Mm-hmm. Our students will get us there uh, because certainly that's what they're asking for and their families are asking for that, just as your family did to say, why are you doing this? Uh, you know? uh, and, and so I do think that, that there are pressures and demands um, and Webster is a place that tries to meet a need. We'll get there, but it's going to be in fits and starts, and it isn't going to be legislated from outside. It will be organic if it's going to be true to um, mission. So obviously, I, I hope to meet you in person and 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 have a much deeper discussion. I, I've learned so much, but what would you like to leave all of our students? We have over 8 million U.S. and international on the side, all the this podcast is sent to over 2,000 university presidents. What would you like to leave them with? Mm. My life advice to every student I've ever talked to is make the decisions that give you the most future options and the most future decisions to make. Mm. Thank you. This was great. Brad? Well, that was great. Well, thank you so much for thank your time. You. Thank um, you. Thank you. I'm, I knew we would have a good chat and we did. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on Plexus, 
please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. That's P-L-E-X-U-S-S dot com forward slash solutions. Or you can email us at podcast at plexus.com.